I think it's a little short-sighted and sort of purposefully naive is to suggest that paying the writers less is going to help those businesses down the line. Because arguably, that's where you should be investing, is in the content creators that are going to deliver the next big hit for you. Welcome to the Powers That Beat Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Tuesday, May 16th. Today, I'm joined by Matt Bellany with an inside look at what's really going on as the writer's strike enters week three. Will public outrage cause either side to back down? Is the traditional Hollywood writing career already over? And what about the tensions between the middle class within the writer's union and its most successful showrunners? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life welcome to the powers that be i'm ben landy filling in for peter hamby i'm here with matt bellany in los angeles where uh in case you have not heard we are entering week three of a hollywood writer's strike welcome to the show matt thanks for having me so matt i know you've been talking to a lot of really smart and charismatic people On the writer's side of the picket line, you had one of the WGA negotiators, Adam Conover, on your podcast, The Town. You also talked to Mike Schur. He's the the writer and showrunner who's done Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a bunch of other things. Also on the negotiating committee, you have all these actors and celebrities who are obviously um, have incredible public profiles. They're taking selfies, delivering pizzas, delivering donuts. I guess I'm not surprised that the studios have not been as public-facing in their public relations campaign. In fact, I haven't really noticed a PR campaign at all from that side of the negotiating table. And um, I guess I'm curious whether that matters at all, 
that the public may or may not have a bad opinion of like David Zaslav or Bob Backish or some executive at Sony they've never heard of. Does that affect this at all? Are the studios thinking in that way or, or does it just not compute for them? No, they don't see that as a winning strategy. Now, they haven't been completely silent. The writers put out a whole document the first week of the strike, essentially saying these are the reasons that we are on strike and that talks broke down and basically saying we submitted this proposal. The studios either did or didn't respond. And on most of the issues, they didn't even respond, according to the writers. And the studios did put out a document that basically said, no, no, no. This is what really happened. These are the main issues. This is where we are willing to budge. And that was at least a little bit of a PR campaign. And predictably, the writers went nuts on social media and they they wrote op-eds and gave interviews talking about how that wasn't actually what happened. And I think the studios realized that these people have public profiles and they're not going to win a PR battle. And ultimately, the PR battle probably doesn't really matter because this is a negotiation. It's going to happen behind closed doors. And they see the priority as being focusing on getting a deal done. Now, I think that's smart. However, the way that the PR campaign helps the writers is to get greater solidarity among the writers, to fire them up, to talk to each other on social media to put out articles that that paint the the writer's cause as being heroic and something they need to stand up for. So that helps with their own membership to make everyone get on board. It also potentially helps with the public. If they get if they feel like there is public support for this that maybe the politicians involved here might uh, might decide to get involved. You know, we saw a statement from the White House about, you know, saying the writers deserve a fair contract. We had a representative, Katie Porter, who is from Orange County near Los Angeles. And she came out and actually joined the picket line with the writers. So getting their message out does help win over these kind of influential figures. But ultimately, I don't think it matters that much to the ultimate deal that they get. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I mean, obviously, the public support and solidarity with the writers is very heroic in theory. And you see a lot of this on Twitter. But it's not like anyone's out there boycotting watching TV. I mean, just the opposite. And I assume that as the strike goes on, actually, maybe people will even start to sour on the writer's strike. I don't know if that's something that the studios are counting on happening, or that they're just watching their stock price. Well, I mean, think about it. If people don't have their shows in the fall, they may start to get upset about that if the late night shows don't come back. You know, I'm, I was annoyed. I, I instinctively go to HBO on Sunday night because I watched John Oliver. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's not there. I don't know who you blame in that situation. The Guild seems to think that the public has this negative feeling towards streaming services. And Adam Conover talked about that on my podcast. I, I don't think people think that way. I think people like their shows. And they want to watch their shows. If they can't, they get upset. And maybe then they start to say, well, wait a second. Why are these writers on strike? But they could just as easily say, well, wait a second. Why won't these studios pay these writers a living wage? I mean, we are seeing macro trends in this country that are very favorable towards organized labor over the past five to 10 years. Um, you can say that it's due to all of the income inequality, the rise of you know influential corporations, all the reasons that we see 
in general politics, but people like unions a little bit more than they did even 10, 20 years ago. And we're seeing unions make greater gains all over the economy. So the writers are kind of benefiting from that sensibility, I think. And uh, just the question is, how long will they benefit? Let's get into what the studios really want here, because it seems like there are a bunch of issues where you could see a compromise over wages or the residuals formula. Theoretically, there is some point where you can meet in the middle. And then there are these more existential questions about writing as a profession, as a career, whether there's really room in this industry for people to be lifelong writers in Hollywood. Obviously, writing is an industry now where like other industries in America, it has become very stratified between a handful of people who make a ton of money and are very successful, and then a large, large group of people who are less successful. Where the studios seem to have a very different view is sort of like how the writing process should work and what it means to make a living as a writer. Can you sort of put on your David Zaslav vest and explain what they want, how they sort of want to reconfigure that job? Well, I don't know that they would necessarily call it a reconfiguring. I think what the studios say is that the entire television business has completely changed in the streaming era. Gone are the 22-episode sitcoms and the 24-episode dramas. And a lot of these older model TV shows, now there are way more shows on the air, 500 scripted series in this peak TV era. But... Many of those shows are shorter episode, anywhere from six to 10 episodes. And that is necessarily going to change the way that writers are paid. You don't need to have a 10, 15 person writer's room when you are breaking a story for a, an eight episode Marvel show. You just don't need that. And that's where the rise of these mini rooms have come into play, where they assemble a group of writers, you pay them scale, and you kind of beat out what the story is going to be for this six to eight episode show. And then it's handed off to producers to make that show happen. And the writers feel that they are being screwed here because they're being cut out of the production process and they're not being given a path to learn and to grow as professional writers. The studios see it as just the reality of the business. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Technology has moved this business beyond what it used to be. And there are ramifications across the industry. These shows aren't any cheaper. That's the thing is it's not like all of a sudden television shows are being done for cheap. The cost of TV shows is going way up, but that's because the viewer is demanding a lot more out of these shows than they once did. You have to have visual effects. You have to have big stars. You have to have you know really compelling IP. All of these things that cause shows to stand out in a very crowded television landscape are the kinds of things that make them more expensive. So the writer is still involved, they would say, but maybe not the number of writers, maybe not, you know, they're not going to pay people just to pay them. And they do pay when they need to. They pay extraordinary amounts of money on these overall deals for the A-level writers. And they the number of, of writers that have become writer-producers has gone up. And those fees which the Guild does not control, the producing fees, those fees have skyrocketed over the past decade. So the studios argue that writers are getting paid. The amount that they might be getting for writing may not be going up that much. 
and the number of episodes may be going down, but it just means you need to get more jobs. You need to work on more shows. And the writers say that's untenable. Yeah, the model you're describing sounds a little bit like gig work. I mean, this sounds reminiscent of other transformations we've seen across the economy in other sectors that, you know, you're going to have potentially a handful of superstars. And and to your point, the people who are successful are incredibly successful. They are making so much money. They're doing much better than they ever were before in aggregate. But there's this large sort of middle class and underclass of writers who are not getting those opportunities to learn the business, to learn about show running or production and having the opportunity to rise up in the ranks. And for those people, they might be sort of permanently relegated to uh, something a little bit more like gig work, to taking work on contracts that last for a very short amount of time. And they don't really ever fully get brought into that ecosystem. Yeah, that's the complaint. And for many of these writers, that's a very legitimate complaint. A lot of the gains that the Guild has made over the decades have been when the studios want to minimize the commitments that they have to make to these writers, and the Guild steps in and say, no, if you want a late-night comedy writer, you do minimum a 13-week contract. And that at least gives you a basic base for making some money on these shows. If the studios were left to their own devices, they would bring in late-night writers for a day work or joke work where you get paid by the joke. Like, that's not what the writers want. And indeed, one of the proposals, according to the writers, was that the late night shows be able to go to a day rate. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. So it's a a push and pull here because on the other side of it, the writers want there to be mandatory staffing in these rooms where even if the creator of the show is Mike White, who writes alone and doesn't need a staff of writers on his shows, like he did the White Lotus. The Writers Guild wants there to be mandatory staffing levels. And the studios say, well, wait a second, that's not even good for the creator. We're not just going to create fake jobs here so that writers can feel employed. That's like paying people to do nothing. So that's one of the big bones of contention here is will there be a mandatory staffing level? Okay, I want to take a quick break. And then when we get back, Matt, I want to talk more about the economic pressures on the industry. Welcome back. So Matt, we've been talking about what the WGA wants from the strike and sort of also the the studio view of the world. And I wanted to ask you, I wonder how much the studio's attitude and approach comes down to the specific financial pressures of this moment. Obviously, the industry has changed. You mentioned that, you know, we have more shows, but fewer episodes. Obviously, fewer people are watching TV, more people are watching streaming, which has a different sort of binge model in terms of the way people consume that content. But also the big development of the last two years or so is that this industry has become a lot less profitable. Linear TV is throwing off less and less money. It is in this sort of permanent, inexorable state of decline. The box office has been down since the COVID era, although it's, you know, it's coming back a little bit. And streaming is just, is, is just not really making much money. I mean, Netflix, I think, is one of the, the few platforms that is actually profitable. For the rest of the studios and big entertainment companies, streaming is actually sort of a, a lost leader. They, they realize they need to be in streaming because it's a lifeboat to whatever this next phase of their industry is going to be. But it's not making the money. And in fact, in a lot of cases, it's losing billions of dollars a year. Clearly, it was easier for these companies to support creatives, to support these creative industries when they were flush with money. Now it seems like they are seriously penny pinching, looking at, you know, do we even need a traditional writer's room? 
I'm curious how big of a factor those economic pressures are here and also just how short-sighted you think that might be. Well, it's interesting because the studios rightly, I think, point out that all of their stocks are down and that no one has really figured out how to make money in the streaming business, except Netflix, which does have a profitable streamer. But that's the only business Netflix is in. These other companies, they see the linear TV money going down, down, down. Nobody has figured out how to be- make a profitable business out of streaming. And they don't know if the economics are ever going to be as good as the cable television business was. And that propped up the entire industry for a few decades. So they're not wrong in saying these businesses are challenged. Where I think it's a little short-sighted and sort of purposefully naive is to suggest that paying the writers less is going to help those businesses down the line. Because arguably, that's where you should be investing is in the content creators that are going to deliver the next big hit for you. And that's where the writers say, we are the engine here. Nothing happens without us. And these studios aren't getting out of the content business. The history of this entertainment business has been that they will find a way to make money off this stuff. They're not closing down production facilities. In fact, across Los Angeles and other areas, they're increasing the amount of production space because the expectation is that there will be a lot more production in the future. And that means that these companies long term see that content is the way to make money and more and better shows will make money. You've also got three of the members of the AMPTB, which is the studio arm. Three members are some of the biggest companies in the world. You've got Apple and Amazon They're members of the AMPTP, but they are gigantic companies that make all their money, not in content, but in other businesses. So they have more, Apple has more money than almost any other company just sitting there. They could fund the writer's demands on their own, and it would be barely a blip on their earnings. They don't want to because it's horrible precedent and the other members wouldn't like that. But to say that Apple and Amazon are poor, is kind of laughable. The other one is Netflix, which has figured out how to make money in streaming. And that's you know their big tech company as well. So I, I don't totally buy this argument that the current economics of these companies justify paying writers less. Yeah, I wonder how much these two sides are sort of talking past each other here and, and, and how important it is that the, the cultures are just so different. I mean, you had Mike Schur on your podcast the other day. He was basically saying that, um, you know, by potentially moving to this system where you, you, you don't have the apprenticeship of new writers like Mike Schur, who, you know, was a writer on SNL and then he writer on The Office and he learned the production side, he learned to become a showrunner and then he went on to launch his own shows. That if you don't have that system, if you don't give writers enough money to support themselves in their early career, to learn the ropes, that you you sort of kill off this entire talent pipeline. That you know you're sort of uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face. I don't want to put you on the spot, but you know you, you talk to a lot of these executives, you talk to people on the studio side. Do you think that's a compelling point that the, the sort of the bean counters on the on the business side don't totally understand or don't appreciate, or do they get it and they just think that they can they can bully the writers into just into taking a slightly worse deal? Well, listen, there are things that the writers don't mention when they talk about how this pipeline for showrunners is being compromised. A lot of these streaming services are more willing now to take a chance on a show without a pilot, 
used to be you'd have to go to pilot first. And then if the pilot was good, you get picked up to series. Now, a lot of these streamers don't even want a pilot. They just want to put the trust in this creator and they'll do the show. So that's a good thing for writers that if they want to see their shows made and make money on the show, the creator driven economy does kind of leave out this pipeline and this apprenticeship that has been a hallmark of the industry. And Mike talked a lot about this on my podcast where, you know, there were junior writers at the office when he came to LA, a lot of whom went on to create their own shows because they learned how to do it on the office. And today, if you're in a mini room and you're handing off the show to a seasoned producer, not even allowed on set, barely even know what ends up happening with the show that you wrote, that's not great for creating the next generation of showrunners. And the argument goes, we're going to have these companies are going to have situations come up where they're going to have to spend more money because the person in the job doesn't know how to do it. So, you know, that's a real concern here that you're neglecting the next generation of showrunners by not giving them the experience that they need and that that's going to be a problem for the industry at large. The problem with that argument is that it's hard to make that argument on a quarterly basis. And these companies are judged on their quarterly earnings and they feel like if they can cut costs and make their numbers for the quarter or the year, they're going to get promoted and get a bigger bonus. And that's where they typically act on. So if they're not going to act on the long-term benefits, it's up to a guild to step in and do it for them. All right, last question. Matt, you had this incredible quote from Aaron Sorkin, one of your recent newsletters. You'd been doing a roundtable with him in 2010, and he was talking about the previous writer's strike in 2007, 2008. And I've got the quote here. He said, because the vast majority of the members of the union are not employed... Frankly, the union works best as an organization not to protect writers from management, but to protect people who want to be writers from people who already are. Obviously, there's a little bit of truth there. Aaron Sorkin's kind of being a jerk. But I wanted to ask you, how much of that tension that Sorkin is manifesting there between the superstars like him and the vast majority of people who are not as successful as Aaron Sorkin is actually exploitable? by the studios, how much that might actually weigh on these negotiations with the WGA over time. Because obviously, you know, there's a handful of writers who are superstars, who are immensely successful, who don't really need this strike. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the divide here. That is not, I mean, Aaron Sorkin sort of put it out there in a very harsh and very Aaron Sorkin-y way. But that is an opinion that is held by many successful, not many, but by a lot of successful writers, especially after the last strike. The strike authorization vote for the 2007 strike was in the 90s, but there were about 9% of writers that did not agree and did not want to go on strike. This strike, the current one, has a 2 point something percent no vote on the strike authorization. So this strike has much greater solidarity. I think that's because it's not just about money. It's about more of these kind of existential questions and the feeling that these writers have been left behind in the streaming wars. But right. Sorkin is not alone on this. The Writers Guild is a weird guild. It's got these extremely high-earning showrunners and Oscar winners. And then it's got a middle ground of you know working writers. But by most estimations, you know, 40-50% of the writers in the guild either are underemployed or unemployed. So there are incentives here to just go nuts and go scorched earth. 
because what do a lot of these writers have to lose? They're not working anyways. And what Sorkin is saying is that those writers tend to get the lion's share of attention from the guild, but they're the this class of writers like him that want to do the right thing, and he is a union guy, but he says, I have more power as my own self than I do in this union. And that's not what unions are for, he says. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think unions do benefit from the power of its most powerful members. But there is a sensibility out there. And Todd Phillips, another A-level writer, said the same thing, where it's like they, you know, they tend to represent the lowest earning members while not necessarily recognizing the negative consequences of strikes on the working writers. Does it matter if, if the WGA starts to lose the um, the Todd Phillipses and the and the Aaron Sorkins of the world? No, I mean, if they are not now, they must represent a very small percentage. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, it's telling that you in the social media era, you haven't seen people come out like that, like Sorkin did. I mean, that the interview was in 2010. Don't think you'd see Sorkin saying that today, even if he still really believes it. No, he'd be um, a lot more careful. Yeah, I asked him for a statement asking him that, and he said, I stand so- shoulder to shoulder with my WGA colleagues. So he has, he's very much more careful about that. But it's early in this strike. If we're in month two, three, four, five of this strike, and it is wiping out this middle-class writer, I think you will start to see people be more public about, you know, what are we getting at? What is the cost benefit in continuing this work stoppage? Then you will start to see a little bit more. And the studios are counting on that because that's where they get their benefit is when the hurt starts to set in on these writers. Right. It's all solidarity for now, but we'll, we'll see how things evolve. Matt, that's our show. Thanks so much for coming and doing this. This was, uh, this was fun. We'll have you back. No problem. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Dylan Byers. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck, and Bob Tabador.